Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you are so faithful to us. We have a relationship with you chocked full of promise and blessing. A no-lose situation. And even tonight, if we're going through mega trials, the very worst that we experience on this side of eternity is much better than anything we could have experienced in eternity apart from you. The very worst experience here on earth is better than the best experience of the believer. We have so much to look forward to. And we have a God who has promised to walk with us through thick and thin. And I pray, Lord, that tonight rejoicing would mark our lives. Joy would mark our lives. The joy of salvation. Not a pseudo-joy, not a put-on joy. A deep-seated contentment that comes from walking with you. I pray, Father, for every person who's gathered here tonight that you would tailor-make this Bible study according to the need of each one. That's an impossible human endeavor apart from a great work of grace of your Holy Spirit. But Lord, would you do that? You have a knack of just making sure the right thing is said to the right person at the right time. Father, we're also mindful tonight of others who are around us in this auditorium, some of whom we don't know, some of whom we need to know, that we might be available to love and to serve and to minister to them, to not come and be an audience, but to build relationship and be a fellowship. Help us, Father, to weave our lives together and build upon each other. Then, Father, we're mindful of big world out there that doesn't know you. And what a thrill it is to be an ambassador. Privileged to be your representative. To do that, Lord, we need to be equipped. And for many of us, though we've heard Bible studies before, we didn't retain it all. We need to be reminded of these things until Jesus comes back. Help us, Lord, to grasp truth, that we might share truth with those who are in darkness. Use our lives as your light. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, you meet the strangest people in church. Have you ever had an experience where you're sitting in church and before or during or even after, you see someone you haven't seen in a long time, That's the last person you'd expect to see in church. Look at that. I, that guy was a creep when I grew up. Now look at him. Who does he think he is? That person might be thinking the very same thing about you. <laughs> the great thing about the church of Jesus Christ is that God will accept anyone. God will accept anyone who will come by faith willing to submit to him. But just because it is a church doesn't mean that everybody who comes to the doors 
and the portals of that facility into that assembly is a Christian. A churchgoer is not a Christian. Case in point is the text we're about to read. In the synagogue is a demon-possessed man. And I'm sure after the service, some of those Jews were scratching their heads saying, you know, you meet the strangest people in church. Who would have thought that a man controlled by a devil would be at our service today? Yet he was. Of course, they also had no idea that the creator of the universe would be in church that day as well. Jesus Christ was there. It says he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Now we see Jesus in the synagogue. Not for long. That's going to change soon. The doors of Judaism, including the synagogue, are closing And they're closing pretty fast on the ministry of Jesus Christ. Oh, he will show up in a synagogue or two from here on out. But most of his ministry will be out of doors. Rejecting Jesus Christ, he will go outside of the wineskin of Judaism. They're not able to to handle, to contain the new wine of the gospel. They become too stiff and too rigid. And so Jesus will go outside of that rigid system to anyone who will receive him. They're offended at Jesus. In fact, it seems that wherever he goes now, there's plants. There are people who are planted in the assembly to watch, to listen, to see if Jesus will break their petty, dumb rules. I'm not talking about the laws of God. Those are not petty and dumb. But they attacked so many rules and erroneous regulations to the laws. Those were petty. And they wanted to get Jesus on a technicality. Jesus was gaining popularity, notoriety. Thus, the rope of authority was slipping from the hands of the designated leaders. And getting uptight, they wanted to make sure that they would monitor his every move. For we already read the last time when Jesus was in Nazareth. They were offended at his sayings. Because he spoke about God reaching out to the Gentile nations in different periods of Jewish history. Now, Jesus shows up in Capernaum. He was raised in Nazareth, a great little town. However, it was an out-of-the-way town. The real action was on a main road called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. The Via Maris ran down from Egypt up the coast along the Way of the Sea, and then went inland, right around where Megiddo is, the valley of Armageddon, and crossed up through Capernaum, and from the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, it went all the way over into Syria and Mesopotamia. So it was like the major drag that connected two vital parts of the world with each other. Israel was sandwiched in the middle. Capernaum was right along the Via Maris. And there was also a man who was collecting taxes out on the Via Maris. His name was Matthew. We're going to meet him also in just a little bit. So Galilee becomes a major crossroads for anyone traveling between Egypt and Mesopotamia. They would go through Galilee. 
And it just makes sense that Jesus would headquarter his ministry at Capernaum. Capernaum's a great little town. It was, wasn't a really little town back in Jesus' day. It, it, it's a tiny town. It only has a little monastery church there now, but in those days it was very populated, being a major crossroads at that time. And that's where Jesus has his headquarters. Now, we see that Jesus is in the synagogue. Let me just explain to you where the synagogue came from. I think I did at the beginning of our study, but by way of refreshment, you never read about a single synagogue in the Old Testament. You read about a tabernacle, you read about a temple, you don't read anything about a synagogue until you get to the New Testament. That's because the synagogue didn't even exist until the Israelites were displaced, taken out of their country and shipped over to Babylon, where they spent 70 years. In Babylon, they had no temple. Having no temple, they could make no sacrifices. They could have no morning and evening worship centers and sessions. The office of the priest became extinct. Why have a priest if you don't have any sacrifices? You can't have sacrifices because there's no temple. Thus, in captivity, we are not able to practice ceremonial law. Since we can't practice ceremonial law, let's give our attention to the written law. And so they developed in Babylon what they called in Hebrew the Beit Knesset, the house of gathering, known in Greek as the synagogue, the place of gathering. It was simply a meeting place, a very simple meeting place where people would gather together and at first they would rap. They would fellowship. Being Jews, being displaced, they wanted each other's comfort and fellowship in a foreign country and they started talking about the law. And they started giving a lot of emphasis to the oral law. That's where it was developed in Babylon. They would have Bible studies, but then they would seek to apply what the Bible meant to their life. The office of the scribe developed during the captivity. They would read a passage of Scripture, but when a passage of Scripture was read, the sages would ask a question. Well, what does this mean exactly? What do you think Moses meant? And if Moses were alive, how would he apply this to my life today? So they started talking and arguing and deliberating and writing all of that down until they had huge volumes of commentaries, Midrash, Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, and then the Jerusalem Talmud. The synagogue became the center of Judaism in the captivity. It became a place where they raised their kids. They had Bible school for their children every day. They were taught the scriptures at an early age in the synagogue. It became a court system. Had O.J. lived in ancient Babylon, he wouldn't be on television every day in a secular court. He'd be in the synagogue. Everything was done in the parameters of the biblical law. Within the synagogue, if a person was found guilty of a misdemeanor, the synagogue became also a place of punishment. They would whip them in the synagogues. There was a guy whose whole ministry was to take a whip and flog people guilty of a misdemeanor. Now, some of you, I can see it in your face, thinking, I'd like that ministry. <laughs> and probably some of you do very well at it. 
That's what Jesus was referring to when he said, You will be brought before kings and rulers, and some of you will be beaten in the synagogues. That was the place for the beatings to take place. It was also the place where they were sentenced for a capital crime, but they were never executed within the walls of a synagogue. So the synagogue became the meeting place. When they came back to Israel, though they erected a temple, they kept the practice of having local synagogues. Now, in Capernaum, if you were to be over there today, you would see the remains of a beautifully preserved limestone synagogue, circa 2nd century. The portals face Jerusalem, as do all synagogues around the world, as they're supposed to, facing where the temple is, where the sacrifices took place. It's not the original synagogue where Jesus was, but it's placed over the remains and in the same exact place where the synagogue, where all of these things we're about to read about take place. Now, anybody here been to Israel? Raise your hand. Oh, great, quite a few. So you can remember, it's in your mind's eye, walking into the portals of that synagogue and the places where the men would meet versus where the women would meet. It was the center of town in Capernaum, sort of like the churches in uh, uh, the old parts of Europe, the steeple and the churches in the middle of the town. So everything revolves around the worship at the church. Everything revolves here around the synagogue. Now, let's just suppose we're at a synagogue service now. We're in Capernaum. The first thing you would notice in terms of staff is the elder of the synagogue. You could always recognize him. He sat up front. He sat up on this, what we call the stage area. During the worship, he wouldn't be with the congregation. They would be in designated seats facing the congregation. That was the elder. Then you would notice what they called the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue is the guy who planned the service out. He's the guy who said, okay, we'll start at this time. We'll have this song. This guy will come in. We'll read from this. He planned the service out and submitted that to the elder of the synagogue. Jairus was a ruler who had planned synagogue services. A third staff member was called the Hatsan, or the minister. He was called the minister of the synagogue. His job, he was like the janitor. It's the meaning of the word minister. He would make sure the lamps were on. He would make sure the sound system was going. I'm just kidding. They didn't have them in those days. But he would make sure that it was physically arranged just right and the people were comfortable as they would get into the synagogue. Then in the service, there was somebody known as the delegate of the congregation. Now, the delegate of the congregation, the del not the delegate, the delegate of the congregation was a Jewish male out in the congregation who would be called upon to come up, unravel the scroll, and speak to the people, giving testimony, bearing witness from the Word of God. Jesus fulfilled the role as delegate of the congregation when he was in Nazareth. Opened up to Isaiah 61 and shared a message from that. And he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Then there would be sometimes another guy called the interpreter, and since the text of this scroll was written in Hebrew, but people spoke Aramaic, uh, the delegate might read it in Hebrew. The interpreter would make Aramaic interpretation so that people could understand. And then the other staff people were called almoners. They took the collection. They would pass the hat. They would take 
money from the people for the upkeep of the synagogue as well as for the poor. That is sort of the, uh, the staffing of the synagogue service. So, Jesus is in Capernaum. You can picture all that in your mind uh, as we approach this study. Now, they were astonished, verse 32, at his teaching, for his word was with authority. I think that we have a wrong picture of Jesus Christ so often. I think he was gentle. I think he was full of love, full of compassion. But he was authoritative. You know, we have the nursery rhyme, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Well, that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, was capable of taking a whip and whipping people out of the temple and overturning stone tables. He might have done it with a smile, I don't know. (laughs) But he was an authoritative, manly man. Not the effeminate Christ that some pictures try to portray him as, skinny and emaciated and pale. Jesus also spoke with authority. Now that was a contrast because the rabbis always liked to hide upon other authorities. They would say, now rabbi so-and-so, and it's been said, and they would never be definitive. They never had any authority. The Old Testament prophets had delegated authority from God. They said, thus saith the Lord. That was authoritative, but even that was different from Jesus' authority. He was authority incarnate. While the rabbis would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says, and while the Old Testament prophet says, thus saith the Lord, Jesus was in a class all of his own. He could say, but I say unto you. Whoa. Nobody did that. And people were compelled. Here's a man who knows where he's going. He speaks the truth. He speaks it with authority. And it made a difference. They were astonished. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had an un clean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, don't you know that this really shook up the church service that day? You know, the elder and the uh, ruler didn't plan that in the service. It was a disruption. But it was according to God's sovereign will because Jesus was there and knew how to handle it. The ancient world had all sorts of goofy ideas in their theology and in their demonology. The ancient world, even among the Jews, but principally among the pagans, believed that the very air that we breathed housed demons waiting for embodiment. Now, I believe in demons, but they actually believed that you could be demon-possessed at the drop of a hat. That if you didn't wash your hands properly before a meal... A demon named Shibta would attach itself to the food, and if you ate it, that demon would go inside your body. You'd be demon-possessed. You could get it through drinking of water or wine. The Egyptians categorized the human body into 36 parts and said each of those parts is capable of housing a demon. And they said... Well, you can have the demon of lust, and you can have the demon of uh, uh, lethargy. And they, they categorized and listed demons much like the false prophets today in churches. Come up with the erroneous baloney that a Christian can be demon-possessed. That, to me, is a slap in the face 
at the power and the sovereignty of Almighty God who bought you with the blood of Jesus Christ and desires to live inside and inhabit you and to say that he would share the apartment with a demon is an insult. To think that Jesus would inhabit a Christian and say, yeah, Satan, well, come on in. You know you were here first, and after all, this is a stronghold, so until this Christian goes back and does this or that, listen, you can have this part of it. That is so almost blasphemous. It's ridiculous. As I read the scripture, the Bible teaches that salvation is a comprehensive work. And when you understand what that means, man, you ought to go your way rejoicing. There was a time when I dabbled in demonology. There was a time when I dabbled with the occult. There was even a time when, not being a Christian, I asked spirits to inhabit my body. So I think I kind of know a little bit firsthand about demon possession. But I also know the power that comes from leaving the dark side and going to the right side. If there's that much power on the evil side with the devil, oh, think of the power available to the Christian. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But they had goofy ideas about demon possession. Now here's a guy who's demon possessed. By the way, you never once read in all of the New Testament about a Christian being inhabited and controlled by a demon. Ever once. Here's a man in the synagogue. Just because he's in the synagogue certainly doesn't mean he's a Christian. There really weren't any designated Christians yet. And we don't even know that he was a practicing Jew. He was just a guy who hung out in the synagogue. He's there that day. And he said, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. I just love reading this. I don't know why, but again, Jesus is authoritative. And instead of letting the demon talk and having conversations with him and then writing down the experience of the demon in a bestseller, he just says, button it up, zip it, be quiet. In Greek, be muzzled. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. They were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus obviously believed in demon possession because he dealt with it forthrightly. And I believe in demon possession. I think it still happens today. I think, however, a lot of what is relegated as demon, demon possession is something other than demon possession. I am by nature a skeptic. I hear experiences that people, even Christians, have all... If I were to write them down and share them with you, all the experiences that I've heard Christians have, it would be amusing. But I do take it seriously. I think I have seen genuinely demon-possessed people. In fact, I know I have. I've also seen people who said they were demon-possessed and weren't. I was at a church one night. A study was given on the New Testament. Happened to be a study in which the devil, demons were mentioned. 
course, things can be suggested and then the person can react and respond to them. And I was in my office after a Bible study one night. A guy came up to me, knocked on the door, panting. You, Skip, you've got to come quickly to the foyer of the church. There's a kid back there who's possessed by the devil. So as I was walking with this guy, I said, well, tell me, who is this guy? Said, oh, this guy is... He's been in our church now a couple weeks. He gave his life to Jesus Christ two weeks ago. We remember we were there. He prayed to receive Christ into his heart. So by the time I got to the foyer, there was quite a crowd. This guy's, whatever he was doing, had, you know, he's, he'd gathered quite a crowd. People were, wow, whoa, what's going on? This is wild. And he probably liked the attention. So I walked up to him, and if he's going through all those little things, and I said, stand up. You are not demon-possessed. And he looked at me and went, oh. And I explained to him what he was doing and what the Bible says, and I never heard a peep from him since. Now, there's other times when we have confronted people who have been involved as non-believers in occultic practices. They've come into the church. They were scary folks. Two of the pastors went in one day to an office. One guy was counseling, and then pretty soon you heard, Help! Another pastor went in. Talked to this guy. This guy sort of went wild physically. Both these guys got on top of him. One was six foot eight. And this little guy on the ground just shoved this guy all the way across the room. A superhuman kind of a strength. The kind of thing the Bible even speaks about. The demon of Gadara. And then I heard another, help! So now there were three of us in the room. You know, and up to this point, they started having conversations. Well, what, what should we say? Let's find out who it is. And no, let's just deal with it right now. And we just started praying and asking God to deliver this person immediately. And we prayed and we continued to pray. And God delivered this man from demons. But I'm not afraid to confront darkness. I wouldn't say go out and look for it. I think the church makes a grave mistake in kind of doing, you know, Demon busters or something. You know, who are you going to call? And they're going down the street kind of looking for the next demon and we're here. And listen, I don't want any part of them if I don't have to have them. But I'm not afraid of them if a confrontation is necessary. I've told you about Damien, the guy who was part of that ring of demonic worshipers who called me up and threatened my life and we're going to burn the church down or we're going to kill you and your family. And he'd make death threats, but he'd never make them to my face. He'd always call at night at 2 in the morning and scare the secretary who'd answer the phone machine the next morning. And I just got ticked off. I said, I want him to call during daylight hours. It was my day off. I happened to be walking through the church. The phone rang and the secretary goes, it's, it's that guy, it's Damien. I said, put him through. And he gets on the phone and he does his skip. I'm going, oh, please. Bella Lugosi. Peter Laurie. Skeep, I'm going to get you. (laughs) 
He said, it was a foolish move, Skip, having that conference on spiritual warfare. A foolish move. You crossed the line. And, he did. and I said, you know what? I think you're a wimp. I think you're a chicken. I think you have to call at night to scare girls who pick up the phone the next morning. But I want to meet you face to face. He goes, what? I said, I want to meet you in an hour. I said, I'll meet you over here at the Village Inn. He goes, um, I, I don't have a car. <laughs> Already he was softening. By this time he was speaking relatively normal to me. He goes, could you send somebody to pick me up? I said, no. <laughs> I'm not going to pick you up. You figure out you figured out a way to get around so far, figure out a way to meet me over there. He goes, Why are you talking to me this way, this rough? I said, Hey, is this like the pot calling the kettle black here? I want to meet with you and I'll meet you in an hour, village inn. I didn't know if he'd show up. Went with a couple other guys, you know, just in case he would bring his horned army. <laughs> he was there. And we had a great conversation for a couple hours. I said, let's go back to the church. Brought him back to the church, sat in the foyer of the church. He prayed at the end of our session a prayer of repentance, renouncing the devil and asking Jesus to be his Lord. Then afterwards I said, all right, you've done the brightest thing. Now I want you to go to all the secretaries in this church and repent to each one of them for scaring them. It was sort of like a test. Let's see if this guy's really changed. And you know, he, he did. He went to each one of them and said, I, I'm so sorry. My name is Damien. I scared you. I know. And it was, a, it was a chicken thing to do to call at night. And please forgive me. And it was, it was just a great closure to the whole thing. Now, I'm not sharing this story saying, you know, you show me where those demons are. I'll choose them off. Come on. But just to say that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ... You are dealing with a created entity of God. Not the opposite of God. God created the devil. God will one day banish the devil to destruction. God lives in you. Jesus lives in you. You don't have to be afraid of what God has created and will one day completely banish and destroy. God will give you victory. Jesus stood up, said, Be quiet. The demon came out. And verse 37, The report about him went into every place in the surrounding region. I'm sure the news traveled fast. And he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, it was very customary after the synagogue service to do much like what we do on Sunday morning. You know, after Sunday, especially third service, what do you do? You go eat. You go to Village Inn, he said. Well, I don't Stayed away from that place. No. <laughs> but you go eat. After the synagogue service on Saturday, people would go home and usually a meal would be prepared. The guys would hang around the synagogue a little bit longer and wrap. The gals would go home, make the meal. They got home to Peter's house. Instead of a meal, they found a sick cook. Peter's mother-in-law, which indicates Peter, sometimes called by some the first pope, was married. To have a mother-in-law, you've got to be married, right? 
Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Luke, being a doctor, gives, puts this in a medical clause. The Greek medical writers classified fevers into two groups, a mild fever and a heavy, or a high fever, a class A and class B. One was mild and minor, other was life-threatening. This was life-threatening. Jesus rebukes the fever, and as a sure sign that she's been touched by Jesus Christ, she immediately gets up to serve. I think I told you about the woman who came to Charles Spurgeon, so grateful that she was saved. She said, Mr. Spurgeon, Jesus Christ has changed my life, and he'll never hear the end of it. So grateful that Jesus touched her immediately she gets up to serve, to serve her master. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any one sick with various diseases brought them to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, the Sabbath began when? Friday night. Ended Saturday night. It would begin when you could go out and see the three stars plainly shining up in the sky. Usually uh, 18 minutes before sunset. And uh, a little bit before that time, there were signals for the community. They didn't have watches, so they depended upon the blast of the trumpet. There were three sets of six trumpet blasts, so it was unmistakable. When the first set of six trumpets blasted, that was a message to all of the tillers of the ground in the farms nearby to put down your plows, to put down your implements, and to go home. The second blast of the trumpet meant that if you lived in the town or worked in the town as a citizen, it was now your duty to go home. So you'd put down your stuff and you'd walk home. Home was a lot closer than being out in the fields. The third blast of the trumpet meant that the housewives have to begin to light those candles, bringing in the Sabbath, because it's 18 minutes before those three stars have shown. As soon as Saturday evening comes and the three stars are in the sky, Sabbath is over, the day of rest is over. As soon as the day of rest is over, they start walking. They couldn't walk. They couldn't lift a burden. They couldn't carry sick people up to this point. Now it's okay to do that. It's lawful, you see. So they just flood the house where Peter's at. Now, what do you think, and I always think about this, what do you think Mrs. Peter thought? Having her house the center of attraction in Capernaum. Not inviting people over, but after all, Jesus is there. Jesus is staying with Peter. And people would swarm. I, I'm, I'm certain it made her at first a little bit uneasy. What do we do with all these people? Of course, the answer is, don't worry. Uh, they're here because of Jesus. Jesus will handle them. It was healing. Demon possessions, people were freed, for they knew, the demons knew that he was the Christ. I see here a beautiful picture of Jesus the servant. Now, Sabbath is over, and no doubt 
It's evening time. And all night long, as one text even says, all night long they're bringing people to him. And Jesus was there for each one of them. Quite an example, don't you think? The tireless servant. And yet, Jesus did get tired. Remember in John chapter 4, he comes to Sychar, where the woman is there at the well. And it said, Jesus being wearied by the journey, thus sat at the well. Then there was the time when the disciples had to literally carry Jesus in the boat because he was exhausted. Going from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. But he was there to minister to the last person. Now when it was day, oh by the way, some have asked this question. It's probably a good point to, to bring it up. Uh, in verse 41, the demons say, You are the Messiah, the Son of God, declaring his Messiahship and his deity. Even these demons know more than modern cultists know about the person of Jesus Christ. So even though people knock at your door and say, Jesus isn't God. Hey, listen, even a first century demon knew he was God and declared it. Why then did Jesus say, Keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone. Well, a couple reasons that sort of interface. First century Judaism's concept of the Messiah was their own apart from the Scripture. They saw the Messiah not as a suffering servant predicted in Isaiah 53, but as a conquering destroyer of the Roman government. That's what they were looking for. At the time that Jesus walked through Israel, it was a time of heightened emotion. Jews were expecting a deliverer to come. They were anticipating the Messiah. And it was an infamous kind of a nation. People were seething with rebellion. The Romans thought that at any time a, a, a quell could erupt, a rebellion. And they put guards all over the country to make sure a riot didn't break out, especially during the festivals. Jesus knew that if at this point, given the modern concept of who the Messiah was to be, a conquering Messiah, destroying the Romans, that if word got out, people prematurely could force him into that position, as they tried to do in John chapter 6, forcing him to be a king, causing a riot and a rebellion. But Jesus came to die on the cross, to be a suffering servant, before he comes the second time as a conquering king. It was premature. So in his sovereignty, in his foreknowledge, he did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. But he had a job to do. And when it was day, he departed, went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Now, yeah, find this a lot about Jesus, don't you? Spends a lot of time alone with his father. Concentrated periods of time. And I think it's an example to us. He was able to meet the needs of men because he spent so much time with his father. We all need time with God. The more, the better. The best times I've ever had have been times alone seeking God. You know, fellowship with God is sort of like a time exposure on those old photographic plates where you take an old photographic plate, or they did, and they would coat it with silver bromide and they'd expose it to light for minutes, sometimes up to an hour. The longer that photographic plate of silver bromide was 
excited by the light of that going through the lens, the longer it was exposed, the more and more of the image that it was projecting came upon that plate. The more you expose yourself in the presence of God to God himself, the more you bear his image. As you allow yourself to bask in his light, and you take on more of his image, and you are more able to represent God before people. And you've noticed that. Times when you neglect spending time in the Word, neglect prayer, you just find yourself like a sponge, and the water's just wrung out. You've got nothing to offer. So you need to get soaked and spend time in the presence of God. Even Jesus, the Son of God, does that. Now so it was, as the multitude pressed about him, chapter 5, verse 1, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, of course, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Yeah, I like this. I just love the whole vibe of being outdoors. I'd love to build out here on this 10 acres of land a kind of a park and an amphitheater like we've done for the kids. And, you know, this time of the year, well, not on a day like this, but uh, this time of the year through the summer, just to be able to meet outside. You know, hang the building when it's beautiful weather and meet out there early in the morning and in the evening, have our Bible study. It'd be great. And so much of Jesus' ministry was outside by the Sea of Galilee. And, and it was perfect because uh, the shoreline of Galilee, like any shoreline, uh, is eaten up when you have a lot of people that are crowding around it. Jesus had really no space. So uh, getting on a little boat, going a little bit from the shore, turning around, he could have all the people sort of like on an incline, like bleachers. And he could just sit down in the boat and teach them. And when we go to Israel, we love to do this. We love to take a boat across from Tiberias to Capernaum and stop the boat in the middle of the lake, kill the engines. Just float out there for a while, open the Bible, teach from the Bible, pray together, sing in that same kind of a setting. It must have been great as Jesus was just teaching by the Sea of Galilee. Now when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep. Let down your nets for a catch. I like this. All right, church is over. Let's go fishing. Most guys would go, all right, I like this guy. My kind of a guy who wants to go fishing. But Peter has a different response. Simon answered and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. I think that Peter was just humoring Jesus. He didn't want to offend him, but he kind of did in a little kind of a sense. He indicated that he, Peter, was the expert. And Jesus was a preacher, not a fisherman. That's implied. It's inherent in the statement, look, we've toiled all night. The best fishing in Galilee is at night, after sunset. Peter was tired. Okay, he stayed awake for the sermon, but now I want to rest. And here Jesus said, hey, let's go fishing. Nobody catches fish during the day like this. We've toiled all night and we've caught nothing. We're not going to catch anything now. Oh, but hey, I'll humor you. Want to take a little boat ride? We'll take a little boat ride at your command. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. 
They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. There is the secret to a fruitful ministry. I see a lot of burned out ministry leaders, youth leaders, pastors, people who run Christian organizations. They're burnt out. And then they get mad at everybody else. You know, we're the only ones working, brother. You ought to be working with us. You're not doing anything. If only you'd give and only you'd do this. We're just so tired. We've been doing it all. We've been working so hard and we've caught nothing. You know what? Then bring the nets back and hang out. Until you hear a direction from Jesus, throw your nets out this way. Wait for further instruction. Wait for further direction. At the bidding of Jesus Christ, pray for direction. Be open to what God wants now. Don't be married to a scheme or a plan. Be willing to bring the net in and say, all right, haven't caught anything. Instead of being burnt out and getting mad at everybody else, Lord, whatever you say, I'll let it down at your command. He might say, go put it over there. All right. Do it. The result is they got more fish than they could handle. And notice Peter's response. Peter saw it and fell down to Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, Lord, or depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That is always the response when a sinful man recognizes he's in the presence of holy God. You know, people can get pretty prideful. But you can always tell a person who's truly had an encounter with God. They never get prideful. It humbles them. When Isaiah had a vision of God lifted up in the temple, he didn't say, lucky am I, blessed am I, favored am I. I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to go on Christian TV and make a lot of money. He said, woe is me. When Peter saw Jesus and recognized it was God in human flesh, he said, depart from me, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. Paul the apostle recognized after he saw Jesus on the road that he was sinful. And he repented. And everyone who truly has an experience or an encounter with God is never lifted up with pride, but is always humble. And Peter was humble as he recognized, you know, a few minutes ago I thought I was the expert fisherman. I sort of picture Peter with a vest and tackles kind of driven through it and a hat with little tackles on it, Sportsman magazine. No, he was just the expert, kind of cocked just a little bit. You know, this is modern Peter. And now this expert fisherman is humbled by this neophyte fisherman, this preacher. But he recognizes that this is the Son of God. That's why he says, depart from me. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the great catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. He was trembling at this point. If this is who I think it is, who I believe it is, I'm a sinful man. I'm in trouble. Man, I'm scared. That word of calming. Hey, don't be afraid. This is all an illustration, Peter. This is all a lesson. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all, and they followed him. I love the Sea of Galilee. It's one of my favorite places to hang out. When we go to Israel, we're there by the second night usually. It's beautiful country. If you go this time of the year, it's all green everywhere. 
It stays green all winter long because it's 680 feet below sea level. It's part of the Syrio-African rift that runs from Syria down into Africa. And it's all below sea level. Now, if you go to Israel today, it's sparsely populated, just a few little villages here and there at night. You can only see Tiberias and Safed, a little city set up on a hill. But in Jesus' day, there was a ring of cities, hence the term Hagalil, Galilee, a circle. A circle of at least nine cities with 15,000 people per town. It was a very populated area, a very beautiful area. It had several names. It's called in verse 1 the Lake of Gennesaret. It's called Gennesaret because on the western slope of the Sea of Galilee is a huge plain. It's a farming plain called the Plain of Gennesaret. And since it is irrigated by the Sea of Galilee, the lake derives its name Gennesaret. It's also called Galilee. It's called in modern times Kinneret, which in Hebrew means harp, because the shape of the Sea of Galilee is like a Jewish harp. It's about 13 miles long by 8 miles wide, and as we said, 680 feet below sea level, which makes it almost tropical uh, in that part of the world. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man was, who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, fell on his face, and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this was unlawful. If you had leprosy, what did you have to say? Unclean. And you had to do it at quite a distance, 50 yards. And the space, depending on if you were upwind or downwind, on a day like this, of course, with this kind of a wind, you'd probably have to be like on the West Mesa and cry out unclean for people out here because the wind's blowing so hard. But you would always have to separate yourself from people. You couldn't go up. You couldn't have fellowship. You couldn't attend the synagogue except for those synagogues that had a special room called the Mechitza, which was a holding chamber for those that had inflammation of skin diseases. There were two types of leprosy. A mild form, which is simply an irritation of the skin that eventually would clear up. The second form of leprosy was the most loathsome kind of disease known in the ancient world, feared by all men. It would be known in modern times as myobacterium leprae. It began as a small spot on the skin. It irritated and started boring its hole all the way down to the bone sometimes. It was actually living death. For years, these sores could eat away until eventually that person would have a stump left because it's a degenerating kind of a disease. A person was not only in excruciating pain, but as we said, had to be banished from society, which means emotionally he was a cripple as well. He couldn't have fellowship with people except for other lepers. Had this man been married, he hadn't seen his wife, he hadn't embraced his wife for many years. If this man had kids, he was unable to hold those little kids in his arms and bounce them on his knee. And don't you know that if that's all true, this man felt very alone, very alienated, very isolated. He hadn't experienced human touch in such a long time, but he does a very daring thing. He breaks the law and he falls in front of Jesus because he knows who he is. He said, if you're willing, you can clean me up. And he put out his hand and touched him. I never fail to be moved by that phrase. It's unlawful to touch a leper, 
But when Jesus put out his hand and touched the leper, you know, I sort of think the leper, when the hand came out to his face, the leper just went and hugged it. And he hadn't felt a touch for so many years. Here's somebody touching me. Who would do that? Now somebody standing by could say, that's unlawful. You can't touch a leper. Big difference whenever Jesus touches a leper. They're not a leper anymore. You can't touch a leper. Well, he's not a leper. Look. He just got cured. I didn't break the law. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He's healed. He said, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. And the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear, to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. The more he's on demand, the more people that he has to meet, the more he spends time with his father. Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Listen, this was like the who's who of the Jewish clergy. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then, behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him in and lay him before him, and when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on a housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. I love guys like this. I can relate to them. I hate lines. I am a very impatient, impetuous person. I just, if there's a line on a freeway, I'll figure out in my mind every route to get around that line. That's why I used to hate going to Disneyland. I grew up going to Disneyland. And whenever I go back now, it's like, why stand in an, a line for an hour to ride a ride for five minutes? I forget it. You know, I'll watch it on video or something. I'm not going to stand in a line. I have other ways to have fun. Now, my son doesn't see it that way, and I can't talk him out of it. So I do find myself standing in lines for his sake. Now, here's these guys that come up thinking, we got to get him to Jesus. Oh, you know, if Jesus sees this guy, this disease is all over. And I can see the guy saying, no, leave me alone. I'm a poor crippled man. Leave me home. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to go out in public the way I look. I don't care what you think. We're going to get you to Jesus. And they come and they see this huge crowd. Most people would say, oh, well, let's not bother Jesus. Let's go home. Not these guys. They're looking around thinking, well, I hate lines. I hate crowds. Oh, look, there's nobody up on the roof. Roofs in those days were flat, uh, and a stairway along the side went up. It was very much like uh, the housing in New Mexico and in ancient New Mexico where you have uh, adobe walls, vegas that run through. They had in those days beams that would go every three feet, packed with mud, branches, and grass would often grow up on the housetop. So you could easily break through, take off some of the protective tiling in some of the places, Get through the mud, through the thatch, and work your way down. And that was their idea. You say, well, how selfish. To ruin somebody's home. Did they have homeowner's insurance? <laughs> Did they ask permission? 
No, do you think you'd give them permission? Hey, can we cut a hole in your roof and let down our crippled friend? But they knew that if Jesus could get to this guy, he'd be healed. Now the man who has the disease, I don't think has any faith. None is spoken about in the text. Which puts to rest the idea that if you only had enough faith, you'd be healed. You'd walk in perfect health. You'd have all wealth as a Christian. I don't think this man had any faith. But I know that those guys did. When Jesus saw their faith, the text says. So whenever I hear a faith teacher say, now if you only had enough faith, like I have faith, then you'd be healed. I say, listen, buckaroo, if you've got so much faith, then you start going into the hospital rooms and you take these people out. Let's use your faith. Jesus saw their faith. They had the faith to go up on the roof and let this man down. Okay, now put yourself in the position of being in the house. There's Jesus. He's teaching. You're sitting back. You're going... Oh, this is neat. What, Jesus? Oh, this is awesome. He just healed people. He's given us this great Bible study. Pharisees are there, you know, stroking their long beards. Their fancy robes are on. Mrs. Peter's in the back making sure the coffee's going. All of a sudden, at a crucial point in the message, they start feeling things like sand, and things start dropping on them, and the Pharisees find kind of like dirt all over their robes. They're shaking them off. It's unclean, and... Mrs. Peter's going, oh, my house, I just cleaned my house. They look up and they see sunlight. What's all the commotion? The Pharisee stands up, what what are you doing? And Mrs. Peter's thinking, honey, I told you that following this guy's, you know, bad, look at uh, our house. And Jesus is probably over in the corner smiling because he can't wait. Finally, he's let down. And he's there. The commotion is made. This man who's crippled is standing or laying there before Jesus. Behold, oh, oh, verse 20. So when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? Alone. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? You answer that question. Let's say you're in a crowd of people. Which is it easier to say? Is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk? Now, It'd be a lot easier for me to say to a person who's committed themselves to Christ, hey, your sins are forgiven you. That's an internal thing. You can't outwardly see the net results. But to turn to someone who's been crippled all his life and say, rise up and walk, it's a little tougher to say, unless you're God. Then both are on the same plane. Not one is harder or easier to say. Depends who you are. Which is it easier to say? Now let's follow the story and then we'll wrap it up. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose before them, took what he had been lying on, which was simply a mat, no doubt, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. You think he just strolled down the street? You think he said, 
Yeah, nice church service. <laughs> or was he leaping? And I, we never picture that after we read the story. This guy, that guy walked through his front door. And that guy walked down the street. And there was a lot of mouths open that day. Maybe including his own. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Jesus turns to the man lying there and he says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The friends who brought the man probably were let down. They didn't want Jesus to say that. You know, they, they, they lower him down and they're looking at Jesus. Well, come on, are you going to heal him? Well, your sins are forgiven you. What? We didn't bring him for that. We didn't want a little absolution. We want a healing. Now, Jesus says this. This is not a slip of the tongue. This is a planned statement. The Pharisees connected suffering and sin. Judaism connected suffering and sin. That is, if a man is crippled, if a man is suffering, it's because he has committed or his parents have committed some gross sin. Thus, if you see somebody suffering, look at him, he's suffering because he's a sinner. Remember Eliphaz, the Temanite, came to Job with that same sentiment. He said, who being righteous has ever been stricken? Hey, look, look at Job, look at you, you're suffering. If you were righteous, you wouldn't be in this condition. If you walked in obedience and in faith, you'd walk in perfect health. The fact that you are not walking in perfect health indicates that you're a sinner, which is a bogus and erroneous theology. But some of them held to that. So Jesus turns to him and says, your sins are forgiven you. Set the record straight. Also, I think Jesus said this because that's the priority. Before you heal a person, the sin issue must be dealt with. And I think Jesus wouldn't have said this unless he could see into the man's heart. We often say, oh, healing is the most important thing to happen to a person. Oh, it is not. You can walk in perfect health and end up in hell one day. What good is that? The best healing, the most preeminent, important thing, is the healing of the soul. The leprosy of the soul. Sin must be dealt with. And since that is the priority, forgiveness, he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, they start raising in their heart, well, who can forgive sins but God only? Exactly. That's the whole point. Only God can forgive sins. That's why Jesus could say, which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, rise up and walk? For Jesus, it's the same thing. But because... The forgiveness of sins is internal. And anybody could say it without seeing immediate results, while physical healing is external, that you might know that the Son of Man has power to work on the inward man. To prove it, I'm going to heal him. So he turns to him and says, get up, walk. To show you that I can say both. Because only God can forgive sins. Just like only God can heal. So to show that he has absolute authority over the inside as well as the outside. One is the indicator of the other to these Pharisees. 
That's why people said, wow. And we've seen some really weird things today, strange things. I've had the same kind of sentiment after I've experienced when my friend Tony had a paralyzed hand and I prayed for him silently. It wasn't any kind of a yay. Just I prayed in my bed, <laughs> Lord, heal him. And he started moving his hand. I started, I started weeping. I couldn't contain the emotion. I saw before my eyes an actual physical healing. And it was unexpected. I tell you, I didn't have tremendous faith. I just said, God, you can do anything. Do it. Or the time when I had a separated acromioclavicular joint and I was in a mild kind of a cast, setting. I just had it x-rayed. And a friend prayed for me. And immediately I started moving it around without pain, I thought. I mean, it was so amazing. My sentiment was, you know, I've seen some strange things today. But they glorify God. That's always the result of a true intervention of God. Now let's end on this note. Man had leprosy, came to Jesus, and he said these words, If you are willing, you can make me clean. What did Jesus say? I'm willing to be cleansed. I'm willing to be cleansed. You know, leprosy is always a type of sin in the Bible. Leprosy starts small and eventually takes over the entire life. It's degenerative. Sin starts small. Some people say, oh, I can handle it. I can contain it. It's under check. They let it go, and it starts consuming their whole being. They become a slave of sin. Leprosy separates fellowship. People are separated from each other. People feel alienated from God, from their family. Sin also separates. It separates you from God. It separates you from other people. So leprosy is always seen as this fatal, degenerative condition, like sin. But how great it is when you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm filled with leprosy. I'm a sinner. If you're willing, you can make me clean. It feels so good to hear Jesus say, I'm willing right now. Be cleansed. You may have taken 300 steps away from God. You may have beaten a path to go in the opposite direction of God. You might be listening right now over the radio. You just happen to tune in. Or you might be sitting here and you're saying, you know, I'm so far away from God. I'm, I can't retrace my steps. You don't have to retrace your steps. You might be 300 steps away from God. It's only one step back. You can say, Lord, are you willing? Jesus will say right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises all throughout the Bible. Promises made by a loving and powerful God who can perform on his promises. You said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we're saved. You said that if we believe that we have everlasting life and that that's being born again. Lord, I want to pray for spiritual lepers. We're all lepers, Lord. We're all cursed apart from an act of grace. Father, tonight specifically for people who have come tonight to this fellowship and they feel alienated and isolated from God, they feel alone, separated, 
They feel like sin is such a master to them and they're such a slave to it and they feel like there's just no hope. Uh, Lord, I pray that they'd experience that hand willing to touch them in their condition. You don't want to turn your back on them. You want to reach out to them. What a picture of God. A loving, forgiving, gracious, accepting God. You don't blink your eye at sin and you will judge it one day. But oh, how you desire to cleanse us from it. Father, I pray for those tonight who've come or who are listening by radio. Their heart is aching to find peace. We know, Lord, you're right there to say, I am willing to cleanse you. But Lord, you said that we must come. You said in your word that we must receive Jesus Christ. As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. So, Lord... It's our move, and I pray that we make the right one. And as you're contemplating your own condition tonight, if you have come to a place where you acknowledge, I am distant from God, I'm not experiencing the fellowship of God, sin is taking over my life, or perhaps you could say, I've made so many steps away from God, I'm asking you tonight to make the right step, the one step back to Him. It's a step of repentance. It's changing. It's turning around. And you'll find that the Savior is there with His hand extended, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. If you want that tonight, I want you, perhaps like that leper, I want you to raise up your hand right now in this auditorium. Raise it up and say, Lord, here I am. I want you just to cleanse me. I want you to save me. Accept me as I am. Wash me. And keep it up so I can see it, and we'll pray for you. God bless you over there, and you, ma'am, right in the middle. You right next to her. You over here in the middle, on the side. In the back. Anyone else? Over there in the back, by the aisle. Back in the back to my left. Anyone else? Father, for all these who are expressing their need and their desire, I pray, Father, that you would so touch their life that they could leave like this man who was healed, let down by his four friends, walking away rejoicing because definite changes are being experienced. Changes have been made in their life by you. Lord, I pray for each one that you'd help them to realize that no matter how much sin they've committed, by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, it can all be washed away. 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 All be washed away.